Amen. All right, well, we're there in uh, Genesis chapter number <clears throat> 32, and uh, we weren't, weren't, I wasn't here last week on uh, Sunday night. Brother Al did a great job uh, preaching, but uh, we're going to jump right back into the, the Patriarch series here, and uh, basically, Jacob is on his way home. We're almost done with the Patriarchs. I think we're going to be in this at least one more week, maybe maybe two more weeks. Uh, but J- Jacob is on his way home, and uh, I want you to notice, if you look at verse 1, the Bible says, and Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. The Bible says the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host. The word host means a large group. He said, this is God's host, and he called the name of the place Mahanaim. Now, I'm not preaching on this uh, tonight, on this subject, but I want to just run a few verses and show you a couple of things about this. Uh, keep your place there in Genesis 32. That's our text for tonight. But go with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter number one. If you start at the end and you go backwards, you know you got Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter, James, and Hebrews, all right? So you're going backwards. You got uh, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter, James, and Hebrews. And what I want to say is this. There is a host of angels protecting uh, Jacob at this time, but I want to just, and I, again, I'm not preaching on, on the subject of angels tonight, but I just want you to know, know from Scripture that the Bible does teach this idea that God sends angels, and there are what people may even call a guardian angels that are watching over us as believers. And here, Jacob is on his way home. Remember, he's going back home, leaving Laban, and the Bible says that the angels of God met him, and it says that this is God's host. So it was a large group of angels. Now, you're turning to Hebrews chapter 1. While you turn there, let me read for you out of Matthew chapter number 18. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 10, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking, and he says this, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in, that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. So Jesus said about little children, he said, hey, be, be, beware that you despise not one of these little ones because in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father. And that's probably where the idea of like a guardian angel came from. But God says that these little children that we have running around here, hey, be careful not to despise them because they have angels assigned to them. Their angels, uh, the Bible says, Jesus said, do always behold the face of my Father. Are you there in Hebrews chapter 1? Look at verse number 13. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 13. Notice what the Bible says about these angels. He says, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits? Now, what is the word ministering or minister means to serve? Right? Often a pastor will be called a minister. Why? We talked about it this morning. A pastor is not supposed to lord over God's heritage. You're not here to serve me. I'm here to serve you. All right? And that's what the word minister means. And the Bible says that these angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Here's what he's saying. Those that will be heirs of salvation, that's you and I, if you're saved, you, you're, you're, you're an heir of salvation. You've got uh, salvation waiting for you. The Bible says that God has angels that are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to you. Jesus said that their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Now go with me to the book of Psalms. Go to Psalms. If you open up your Bible just right in the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalms. When you're turning to Psalms, do me a favor and put a bulletin or a ribbon or a bookmark or something there in Psalms because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. But while you turn there, let me read from a very uh, uh, famous story out of 2 Kings chapter number 6. In 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 15, the Bible says this, And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? This is Elisha and his servant. His servant wakes up, and all of a sudden there's an entire military, an entire host of military surrounding the city. They're there to capture them, to capture him and his master Elijah. And the young man, he says, how shall we do? He said, what are we going to do? And in verse 16, the Bible says, and he answered, this is Elisha speaking, he answered, fear not. For they that be with us are more than, that, uh, than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, 
open his eyes that he may see. And behold, the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. So there's a story here where Elisha and his servant wake up, and there's a, a, a military uh, uh, army, a military of men that have surrounded the city. They're there to capture them. And, and the young servant, he's, 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 you know, just doesn't know what's going to happen. And Elisha prays that his eyes are open. And this young man, all of a sudden, can see the spiritual world. And he sees that there are all these angels, this host. The Bible says the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire that are surrounding the army that is surrounding Elisha. And also, all, all I want you to notice from the Bible is that according to the Bible, there are angels that are protecting you and I. And we need not be scared. We need not be afraid. We need not worry. In Psalm 34 and verse 7, the Bible says this. Are you there in Psalm? Go to Psalm 34 and verse 7. Notice what the Bible says. Psalm 34 and verse 7, the Bible says, The angel of the Lord... The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. See, if you fear God, the Bible says the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them. Now, here's what I want you to understand. What I'm not saying is nothing bad is ever going to happen to you, okay? I'm not saying nothing bad is ever going to happen to you because there's angels all around you. What I am saying is this. When something bad happens to you, God allowed it. You know, and God, God filters that through these angels, and if something bad... So here's the thing. People sometimes will say, well, I don't know about going soul winning. You know, you go out in those ghetto areas. Yeah, we go in the ghetto areas because we want to get people saved, all right? You know, sometimes when you go to these nice neighborhoods, nobody talks to us, right? So we go to the ghetto areas to get people saved, and sometimes people are like, I don't know. I'm a little scared to go out in the ghetto. Hey, here's all I'm saying. There's an angel. There's a host of angels that go out with us. I'm not saying, look, nothing's ever happened out soul winning in our church. No one's ever been hurt or been attacked or anything. I've never, I've been soul winning my whole life. I grew up in an independent Fundamental Baptist church that has, I've been in a soul winning church my entire life. I've never heard of anything bad happening to anybody. Here's all I'm saying. I'm not saying something bad couldn't happen, but if it does happen, it'll be because God, God allowed it. Because God sends with us a heavenly host of angels, and God is protecting us. And, you know, I mean, I mean, think about all the bad things that could happen to you every day. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen me drive, but the way I drive, I, I've got to have a whole host of angels just, you know, keeping the car on the road, you know. I'm just, I get, I'm easily distracted, you know. I don't, when I, some of you guys take driving real seriously, like, oh, you're really into it. I'm driving, and I'm on the phone. I'm driving, and I'm writing sermons. I'm driving, and I'm, you know, reading nine chapters a day. I, I just, I'm too busy to... To, to not to just be driving, you know. So sometimes I, my wife's just like, I refuse to sleep while you drive, you know, when we're on. But look, I, there's angels all around us. And, you know, I'm a little bit of a Calvinist. If, if God wants to um, kill us in, in the van, then that's, I guess, it's going to happen. I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Go back to Genesis 32. I just wanted to show you that about angels. I thought that was interesting. Uh, because he sees his heavenly host, but it's not just Jacob, it's all of us, you know. I would have been nice. Remember when we had the big protests? The news said there was 1,500 protesters out there. There was probably like 400, maybe 600 protesters. It would have been, wouldn't it have been cool, though, if we could have, like, Elisha prayed and asked God to open our eyes? And you see all this mass of people surrounding the church, but then all these flames, these chariots of fire, you know, protecting us. And people are like, oh, I don't know. Should we go there? You know, I'm just saying this. God can protect you if he wants to. Amen. God had the, the, And here's what I do know. The angel of the Lord and the angels of the Lord are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to us. And that's what's going on as Jacob is on his way home. And God allows Jacob to see those angels. Go back to Genesis 32. Look at verse uh, number 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau. Remember Esau? Now the last time Jacob was in communication with Esau or the last time Jacob heard anything about Esau was 20 plus years ago when Jacob stole the blessing from Esau. And if you remember, that's why Jacob ran away from home to begin with. That's why Jacob went to Laban to begin with. That's why Jacob had this whole episode of his life, these 20 plus years where he served seven years for one wife and seven years for another wife and then, uh, you know, and then uh, all, uh, six years for, uh, for all the cattle and, and all that time. All of that happened because he was running away because he 
hurt Esau because he wronged Esau because he sinned against Esau and he sinned against Isaac and he was running away. But here's what I want you to understand. 20 plus years later, when Jacob is on his way home, when Jacob is tired of being backslidden, when Jacob is tired of being not in the will of God and not in the promised land, and Jacob wants to make things right, when Jacob is on his way home, you know what happens? He realizes, oh, wait, I still have to deal with Esau. And here's what I want you to understand, and here's what I want you to get from that. Wherever you choose to leave in your Christian life, because we're told, we're told that most church people only last three to seven years. Most church people only last in church three to seven years. That's what the, you know, people who keep these statistics and church growth experts tell us. And you know what? I think they're right because I've seen that. I, I've seen that in, 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 in the life of Christians. Usually around the three-year mark that they've been faithfully coming to church, you're, you're, you, you're, you run a high chance of losing them. If they make it past those three years, you may have them seven. But here's all I'm saying. It's very rare, the church member, that you've got decades. It's very rare, and I hope we have many of them, but it's very rare, you know, that a pastor who's been pastoring for 30 years can say, this family's been with us for 30 years. This family's been with us for 25 years. This family's been with us for 20 years. And here's what that tells me. Here's what that tells me is that many of us, is that many of us will run away from God and will run away from church. And it's usually because we don't want to deal with a sin or a problem. But here's all I want you to understand. Whenever, wherever you choose to leave, wherever you choose to leave, that is where you will have to start when you decide to come back. Wherever you choose to leave, that is where you will have to start when you decide to come back. See, people leave our churches, you know, because I'll preach sermons like against fornication. And people will say, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to be part of that. And then, they'll, you know, I don't want to get that sin out of my life. So they'll go back to the world and they'll go back to their lifestyle and they'll continue to fornicate. And then things will happen there. And then they, they're like, oh, things aren't working out. God is not blessing me. I need to get right with God. I need to get back to church. And then they come back to church. And that Sunday, guess what? I'm preaching on fornication. And it's like, wherever you left... When you decide to come back, Esau's not going anywhere. You still got to deal with that. So you might as well just deal with Esau when you're young. You might as well just deal with Esau and not waste 20 years. Do you understand what I'm saying? Whatever reason you left, whatever reason you got mad about, whatever the, the, uh, was the reason you chose, I don't want to confront Esau, I don't want to deal with Esau, I don't want to have to make things right with Esau. I'm just telling you, whenever you choose to come back, you still got to deal with Esau. You still got to deal with that sin. You still got to deal with that problem. And, and Jacob is realizing that. J Jacob said, and J the Bible says, look at verse 3, and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Eden. Now notice what Jacob does. Notice what Jacob does. He's back to his old ways. Because remember, what was Jacob? He was the great what? Deceiver, right? The manipulator. He always had a plan. He always knew what, what he was uh, going to do, what, what, how, how to make things work out in his favor. Look at verse 4. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak unto my lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus. Now, look, if you want to learn about people skills, you can learn from Jacob. Notice how he responds. He wronged Esau, so you know how he responds. He says, my lord Esau. He says, Esau, you're the boss. He says, thy servant Jacob, right? I mean, he, he, he knows the words to use. He says, Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord, I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in thy sight. He, Jacob decided, I don't want to live with Laban anymore. I don't want to live running from Esau anymore. I want to just deal with this. But he decides to deal with it using and leaning upon his own understanding. Because he says, I know how to smooth things over. I know how to win people over. I know how to, you know, steal the heart of Esau. And he sends a message and he says, my Lord Esau, thy servant Jacob saith, he says, my Lord Esau, that I might find grace in thy sight. And he's just back to his old manipulative but he I want you to look at the last part of verse 5. Here's his request, that I may find grace in thy sight. 
that I may find grace in thy sight. That's what he says to Esau. Notice the response he gets back. Look at verse 26. Uh, I'm sorry, Genesis 32, look at verse 6. And the messenger returned to Jacob. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, notice what they said. We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee, and 400 men with him. Now notice, they don't say, we came to thy brother Esau, and he said, great, happy to see you. How are you doing? I'm sending 400 men to help you on their way. He didn't say that. He also didn't say, that stinking Jacob, I'm going to get my revenge, and 400 men are coming after me. He didn't say that either. He just said, hey, your brother's coming with 400 men. He doesn't say he's coming in peace. He doesn't say he's coming in war. He just says he's coming. And here's what I want you to understand. This is not, this is not the response that Jacob wanted. I mean, Jacob wanted a letter from Esau that said, hey, bro, miss you. Glad you're coming. I'll have dinner ready. He wanted, he wanted a grace message. He, he, he said that I might find grace in thy sight. And it's not that he got a grace message or, or a war message. He just got no message. He just hears Esau's coming back, 400 men. Now, look, I don't know about you, but if I stole my brother's uh, birth, uh, birthright and I stole my brother's blessing, and the last time I saw my brother, he swore he was going to kill me, and I'm coming back, and the messengers say, yeah, he's coming with 400 men, I'd probably start worrying about that. And here's what I want you to understand. In this passage, here's what we see. When Jacob is on his way home, when Jacob is on his way home, God puts Jacob in crisis mode. God puts Jacob in crisis mode. And it's interesting how easily and how quickly we forget about God's protection while we're in crisis mode. Look at verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Remember, we started the chapter with Jacob seeing a heavenly host of angels protecting him, right? But now that the news is in, now that the crisis is in, he forgets about the angels. Now the Bible says, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And you know, it's like, Jacob, don't you remember the host of angels? Don't you remember the, the, the angels that, that, that met you and that came to protect you? And I want you to notice that during this crisis time, Jacob still leaning upon his own understanding. He attempts to minimize his distractions. Look at verse 7. I'm sorry, um, to minimize his losses. He wants to minimize his losses. Look at verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. So notice what he does. And he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two bands and said, if Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company, which is left, shall escape. So he's just thinking in a very logical, fleshly way. He's like, I'm going to divide everything into two. If he takes one, I'll still have the other one. If he takes the other one, we can still rescue the other one. But he's in crisis mode. He's in crisis mode. And the question I want to answer tonight, the question I'd like for us to answer together is this, why does God allow crisis in our lives? You ever wonder that? Why does God allow crisis in our lives? Because this is a common theme throughout the Bible. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. But throughout the Bible, it seems like so many of these stories are just like this one, where we're just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. Jacob is traveling in one direction. Esau is traveling in another direction. But there's some time before they meet. And during that time, Jacob doesn't know what's going to happen. Jacob doesn't know how Esau is going to react. And that time is crisis mode. But you'll find that throughout the Bible, God is, always, God is constantly putting his people through crisis mode. Remember the children of Israel? They left the land of Egypt. And they're leaving. And they get to the Red Sea, right? And then Pharaoh's army is coming behind them. And they're in crisis mode. And they don't know what's going to happen. And they're just kind of sitting and waiting to see what the Lord will do. And in fact, God says to Moses, be still and know that I am God. And they sit and they wait. If you remember the stories of the different kings throughout the Bible, remember the story of, of Hezekiah in the book of Isaiah. If you remember the stories, oftentimes uh, 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 an army would come and surround a city and besiege them. And those people would be there and they would be in crisis mode. They just kind of be waiting to see, will the, God, will the Lord deliver us? Will God answer our prayers? What, what, what is God going to do? And I want you to understand, in your life and in my life, often, it is often that God puts us in crisis mode where we're just kind of waiting to get the results back from the doctor. Or we're just kind of waiting to see how things are going to work out with our children. 
We're just kind of waiting to see how this relationship is going to end or how this marriage is going to go. I mean, our church, Verity Baptist Church, just not too long ago was in a crisis mode. Remember, we were told by our previous building that they would not be renewing our lease, which was fine because we'd outgrown it. But because of the Orlando protests and because of the sermon going viral and because of the news and all of that, we were having trouble having other landlords want to take us on. They did not want to take that risk. And we were looking for buildings and we were looking for buildings and we were looking for buildings. And we were kind of just in crisis mode. We were just kind of waiting to see, is the Lord going to provide? What's the Lord going to do? do you, I mean, do you remember that? During that time, and I, I praise the Lord for it. I'm glad, I'm glad they're here. During that time, we had a couple of families tell us that they were moving, begin to make plans to move here, you know, and I was thankful to have, I'm glad they're here, but during that time, I remember thinking to myself, I got to find a building. I mean, we, we got to figure out what's, what's going to happen. We got to figure out what's going to, we're, you know, getting up every day, looking at buildings and calling people, and Brother Carlton took a big part of that with me and, and other men and all of that. I'm just telling you, it is often, it is often that God puts us in a position where we're just kind of in crisis mode. There's not really anything for us to do. We're just kind of sitting and waiting and seeing how things are going to work out. And the question I want to answer tonight, the question I'd like for us to answer tonight is this. Why does God allow crisis in our life? I think there's three reasons for it, and I think we can find them in this passage. Let's look at them together, and I promise I'll try not to be very long. Genesis 32, look at verse 9. Point number one is this. For those of you taking notes, and I'd encourage you to write these statements down. Number one, God allows crisis in our lives to get our attention. God allows crisis in our lives to get our attention. Notice, before the crisis, Jacob's got it figured out. Before the crisis, Jacob knows what to say. Before the crisis, he says, my Lord Esau, thy servant Jacob, he sends the message, he says this, he does that. But now that he's in crisis mode, guess what he does? He turns to God in prayer. Isn't that what we often do when we're in crisis mode? See, often the problem with us is that we usually don't take the attitude pray to God, we usually take the attitude, when all else fails, pray to God. When I've tried everything, when I've tried every plan, when I've tried every, everything that I could think of, I tried that, it all failed, okay, God, I'm going to let you give it a shot. And but see, you say, that's why God puts us in crisis mode oftentimes, because he wants to get our attention. Genesis 32, look at verse 9. In Genesis 32 and verse 9, look, notice what the Bible says. Is it warm in here? I'm warm. Is anybody warm? Can we turn the air on? Thank you very much, Brother Vlad. Appreciate it. Genesis 32, look at verse 9. And Jacob said, and Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac. He begins to pray. And I want you to notice, Jacob gives a pretty good prayer. In fact, there's three uh, good steps here that we can learn about the prayer life, uh, about prayer from Jacob during time of crisis. Because look, if you're in crisis, don't you want to know how to pray well? And Jacob does a real good job at his prayer here. Notice Genesis 32 and verse 9. Notice what it says. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which sets unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I want you to notice, when you're praying during time of crisis, here's a good thing to do. Claim the promises in God's word. Jacob is reminding God that it was God that told him to go back. Jacob is reminding God, he said, he said, the Lord which sets unto me returns like God. He said, God, you're the one that told me to come back. You're the one that told me to face Esau. You're the one that told me to come back and to thy kindred. And, and you said, I will deal well with thee. And listen to me, when it's crisis mode, you and I better learn to claim the promises of God in our prayers. When your finances are not doing well, and you've been faithful to God in your tithes and your offerings, you need to go to God and say, God, you said that you would supply my needs according to your riches and glory. God, you promised that if I was faithful in my tithes and my offerings, that you would bless me and that you would rebuke that devourer for my sake. I'm just telling you this. A good prayer life, especially during the time of crisis, is a prayer warrior that knows how to claim the promises of God. Whenever you are claiming the word of God, God loves that. God wants to hear from you. God, didn't you say? God, didn't you tell me? God, aren't you the one that told me? Hey, when we were in crisis mode here looking for a building, there was many times I came to God. And God said, oh, God, aren't you the one that told me to preach hard? 
I'm pretty sure you're the one that said, cry aloud, spare not, meaning don't leave anything out. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. I'm pretty sure, God, you're the one. God, I'm pretty sure you're the one that told me to rebuke and to reprove and to exhort. I'm just saying, God, I'm pretty sure you're the one that said to me, preach the word, be instant in season. God, I did what you asked me to do. Will you please deliver us? See, during time of crisis, during time of crisis, you and I need to learn to pray, claiming the promises of God. But there's a second thing that Jacob does. Look at verse 10. Not only does he claim the promises of God, but he also prays in a humble attitude. Notice what he says to God in verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. He says, for with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become too bad. He said, God, I was nothing. It's you. It's you that blessed me. And he comes to God, not only claiming his promises, but he comes to God in a humble attitude before God. I want you to notice the third thing he does in this great prayer of Jacob. Look at verse 11. He says, deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau. See, in prayer, not only do you need to claim the promises of God, in prayer, not only do you need to come humbly before God, but in prayer, you need to ask for specific requests. He specifically said, Lord, please. He said, deliver me, I pray thee, verse 11, deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou did say, he said, and thou saidest, he said, God, you're the one that said, I will surely do thee good. And make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I want you to notice, why does God allow crisis in our lives? He allows crisis in our lives to get our attention. It's you and I like to get distracted. It's like that song, the song in the hymn book says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It's in our nature to want to wander. It's in our nature to get distracted. And God will often bring crisis mode into our lives to get our attention, to bring us to prayer. Look at verse 13. Now, let me say this, and there's a great lesson here in prayer, because not only does Jacob pray correctly, but Jacob also does something that's very key to getting answered prayer, and it's after you pray, and here's what he does. Look at verse 13. And he lodged there that same night and took of that which came to his hand a present, a present for Esau, his brother. 200 she-goats and 20 he-goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milch camels with their colt, 40 kine and 10 bulls, 20 she-asses and 10 foals. And he delivered them into the hands of his servants, every drove by themselves, and said unto his servant, Pass over before me, and put a space betwixt drove and drove. And he commanded the foremost, saying, When Esau my brother meeteth thee, and asketh thee, saying, Whose art thou, and whither goest thou, and whose are these before thee? Then thou shalt say, They be thy servant Jacob's. It is a present sent unto my lord Esau, and behold, also he is behind us. Look at verse 19. So he commanded the second and the third, and that uh, followed the drove, saying, On this manner shall you speak unto Esau when you find him. Now keep your place there in Genesis 32. Did you keep your place in Psalms? Go back to Psalms, but I don't want you in Psalms. I want you to go to Proverbs, just the next book over, Proverbs. Sometimes people will say, what Esau did here was wrong. He's back to his old ways. He's manipulating. I don't think he is manipulating at this point. Because what he does is he takes, he just takes a principle out of the book of Proverbs before the book of Proverbs was written. So look, if it's in the book of Proverbs, it it can't be bad, right? Proverbs 21, look at verse 14. Proverbs 21 and verse 14. Notice what the Bible says, Proverbs 21 and verse 14. A gift in secret pacifieth anger. A gift in secret pacifieth anger. And a reward in the bosom strong wrath. Now, the Bible does warn. The Bible does warn about people trying to flatter you and trying to win you over by giving you a gift. And, and obviously, not every time people give you a gift are they trying to, you know, manipulate you, okay? That, that, we're not teaching that. But there, there is, the Bible does warn that you need to be careful that, you know, if you're a judge and you're supposed to be judging a case and one of the people brings you a gift, you know, they might be trying to manipulate you, all right? That's, that's what the Bible teaches. But here the Bible says, but when you've done wrong to someone, when they're angry at you, a gift in secret pacifies anger. And, and that's what Jacob is doing. So I, I don't think what Jacob did was wrong, but I, I do want you to notice a couple of things from this. Number one, it's not enough to pray. We've got to put feet to our prayers. 
So you and I, we like to pray and say, okay, it's in God's hand. No, no, we pray, God, we need a building, and then we get up and go look for a building. Do you understand what I'm saying? You don't, you don't pray, God, deliver me from Esau. Then you get up and you start sending gifts. Then you get up and you start trying to make it right. Then you get up. See, the key to answered prayer is not just good prayer. The key to answered prayer is often what you do after you pray. And putting feet to your prayer. And doing something. And here's the other thing I want you to notice. Go back, go back to Genesis 32. Here's the other thing I want you to notice. Often in times of crisis, God puts things in perspective for us. Because wasn't it Esau who was willing to betray his brother so that he could get a blessing, so that he could get all those things? But once he has them, and his brother might kill him and his family, guess what he's giving away? All the things that he betrayed Esau to get. And I just want you to know, often during time of crisis, things get aligned and things get in the proper perspective, and you start realizing, oh, all those cows, are, they're just not that valuable to me. I was willing to lie and cheat before to get those things. Now I'm willing to give them up and give them back to Esau. So why does God allow crisis in our lives? Well, number one, God allows crisis in our lives to get our attention. Number two, if you go back to Genesis 32, look at verse number 22. Genesis 32 and verse 22. I said, number one, God allows crisis in our lives to get our attention. But number two, I want you to notice, God allows crisis in our lives to confront us with ourselves. God allows crisis in our lives to confront us. God confront us. But God confront us. With ourselves. Say, what are you talking about? Look at verse 22. And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two men, women servants and his 11 sons and passed over the fort Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse number 24. And Jacob was left alone. See, often this is the goal of God during time of crisis is that we get alone. Is that we get alone. I want you to notice what the Bible says there, Genesis 32 and verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. I want you to notice what the Bible says. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled the man with him until the breaking of day. Jacob is getting ready to meet Esau. Jacob is a little distracted. He's praying to God. He, I, I envision, the Bible says he's alone. I envision he's alone out in the wilderness in the night, praying to God, seeking God's help, asking God to help him. And all of a sudden, a guy jumps him. All of a sudden, a guy jumps out from the bushes and just, you know, grabs him. And now they're wrestling. And Jacob was an older man at this time. But let me tell you something. Jacob was a tough guy. Because the Bible says that he wrestled, he wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now, I don't know if you've ever done anything like boxing or wrestling, something like that. But whenever you get into those types of, uh, of sports, and this wasn't a sport. I, think, I mean, if a guy just jumps you in the middle of the wilderness, Jacob probably is thinking he's fighting for his life, right? But even when you do it for sport, I mean, that stuff can be very, uh, you know, people get into the ring for boxing, and they're like, you know, 30 seconds into it, they're like, <gasps> right? Because <laughs> it requires a lot of cardio. And Jacob is just wrestling all night long. And he's wrestling with this man, and we, the question has to be answered, who is this man? And I'll just give you the answer, the answer. I believe that this is the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I think it's a pre-incarnate Christ. Now you say, well, how could Christ show up before? Well, here's the thing. Jesus is God. He, wa he wasn't created. Okay? He, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, he's always existed. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was made flesh. Jesus always existed. I believe this is one of those, uh, I think they call him, the theologians call it a Christophany. I think that's what they call it. I don't know if that's true. But I shouldn't have said it. But here's the thing. It's one of those appearances in the Old Testament where the Lord Jesus Christ appears. You say, well, why do you think that? Well, just skip down to verse 30. Look what he says. After the whole match, the Bible says, and Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. He says, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Now, the Bible says that no man has seen God at any time. The Bible says that if you see the face of God, the Father, you will die. You can't. Remember when Moses asked to see the face of God, God said, I can't let you see my face because you'll die. But he said, he said, I'll hide you, and I'll put my hand up, and I'll allow you to see my hinder parts. Remember that story? But here Jacob says, I've seen God face to face, and he saw them in the form of a man. How could you see God face to face in the form of a man? It has to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, God, the, the Word. And, and I believe it's Jesus that he's wrestling here all night long. And I want you to notice what happens. Look, look, go back to verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, 
And there wrestled a man, I believe that's Jesus, with him until the breaking of day. And when he, now I want you, you see that word he there? He is Jesus, not Jacob. And when he, that's Jesus, that's God, saw that he, that's God, prevailed not against him, that's Jacob. He, Jesus, touched the hollow of his, Jacob's, thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, you've got to look at the story and you've got to think, wait a minute. So Jesus, the God-man, shows up in Genesis. And by the way, he showed up earlier for Abraham in, by the name of Melchizedek. You say, Jesus, the God-man, shows up in Genesis 32, begins to wrestle Jacob, this backslidden man, on his way back home trying to make things right, and then he's losing? I mean, did, did you catch that? Look, 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 at verse, look at verse 25 again. And when he, Jesus, saw that he, Jesus, prevailed not against him, Jacob. Not only is Jacob wrestling with Jesus, but Jacob is winning. Not only is Jacob wrestling with God, but Jacob is winning. When he saw that he prevailed not against him, when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he, Jesus, God, touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. God had to perform a miracle. He touched his thigh, and it came out of joint just so that he could win the fight. And you say, I don't understand. Why would Jesus show up and then not win the fight? I mean, has anybody else ever asked, asked himself that question? Because I've asked myself that question. Why would God show up to fight with Jacob and Jacob win? But here's what I want you to understand. I believe that the reason that everything in the Bible is for a reason. Do you believe that? Amen. Nothing's in the Bible by coincidence. It's not incidental. It's not accidental. It's all in there for a reason. And I think that God allowed this to happen and God allowed Jesus to go down there and have Jacob win to give an illustration, a physical illustration of what's been happening in the life of Jacob his entire life. Because you and I would think, well, Jacob would be wrestling with God physically and win. But listen to me, many Christians wrestle with God every day and win. God will often be dealing with you be wrestling with you, be trying to subdue you and trying to get you to submit to him. And we'll be saying, let's get that sin out of your life and let's get, that, let's get that right with God and let's make that right with Esau. And God will often be wrestling with you and wrestling with me. But listen to me, it's not that uncommon that men beat God at wrestling because we're not willing to give up, because we're not willing to give in, because we're not willing to come under the submission of God. See, what's happening here physically is what happens spiritually every Sunday when you come to church and God deals with you. And you say, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm, I'm not going to. And you read the Bible and there's something in there and you know God's dealing with you and you say, I, I don't want to. It's what in the New Testament is referred to as quenching the Holy Spirit of God. It's what in the New Testament is referred to as grieving the Holy Spirit of God. It's what in the New Testament is referred to as fighting God when God is trying to subdue you. And God is trying to get you to submit and get you to cry uncle. We refuse. And we say, no, God, I won't go soul winning. No, God, I won't tithe. No, God, I won't get rid of that sin. No, God, I won't make that right. And you say, how could it be that Jacob could wrestle with God and win? But yet you and I wrestle with God every day and win. So what does God have to do to win the fight? Same thing he often has to do with us to win the fight. He has to hurt us. He has to... Take a thigh out of joint. Can you go to Psalm 119? Psalm 119. See, there's a physical. Obviously, Jesus could have showed up and just whooped Jacob. The reason that the story is in the Bible is because God wants us to learn a lesson from it. What Jacob is doing all night with, with, with Jesus in a physical sense, it's what Jacob has been doing his entire life with God. He's been wrestling and not willing to submit. Not willing to be beat, not willing. So God has to put him in crisis mode. He has to touch the hollow of his thigh. Psalm 119, look at verse 71. Notice what the Bible says. Psalm 119 and verse 71. It is good. Notice what the psalmist says. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. He said, the psalmist said here, I had gone away from God. I had gone away from the word of God. But when God afflicted me, when God touched the hollow of my thigh, I came back to him. I was subdued in his presence. 
Go back to Genesis 32, look at verse 26. Genesis 32, verse 26. Why does God allow crisis in our lives? I think he allows crisis in our lives to get our attention. Why does God allow crisis in our lives? I think he allows crisis in our lives to be able to confront us, to be able to get us to the place where he can get us to come face to face, not just with God, but with ourselves. Because I want you to notice, notice what happens in the midst of this match. Look at Genesis 32. And don't miss this. Please don't miss this. Genesis 32, look at verse 26. And he said, and he said, this is God, this is Jesus. And he said, let me go. Let me go for the day breaking. And he said, that's Jacob. And he said, I will not let thee go. I will not let thee go. Except thou bless me. Because I think Jacob, at some point in this whole fight, he realized, I'm not fighting with a man. Okay? When he touches your thigh and all of a sudden it's out of joint, you know, you think, okay, this is not just a man. This is obviously God. Or this is something not, it's not just a normal person. So now Jacob said, I want your blessing, I want your blessing. And Jesus said, hey, let me go for the day breaking. And, 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 and Jacob says, I will not, look, look at verse 26. He says, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And then Jesus, and then God. That's a very odd question. Look at verse 27. And he said unto him, think about it, these two have been fighting all night. I mean, they're tired, they're sweaty. No disrespect to the Lord Jesus Christ, but, you know, they're probably smelling, you know, a little bit. You know, they're, they're, they're fighting, and, and it's intense, and, and he wants to leave. He says, if they break it, he says, let me go. He says, I will not let thee go unless thou bless me. And then God, Jesus, in verse 27, he says this, and he said unto him, notice the question he asked, what is thy name? Isn't that an odd question? It's not really the question you ask in the midst of a fight, is it? He said, what, what, what is thy name? What is thy name? And you've got to ask yourself this question, God, what, why would you ask Jacob that question in the midst of this fight? And here's what I want you to understand. Keep your place there in Genesis 32. Go back to Genesis 27. Remember, Jacob, he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Remember that? I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Jacob is on his way home getting ready to confront Esau. And if you remember, the reason that Jacob had to leave home is because he took a blessing. Remember that? See, the last time that Jacob, the last time that Jacob asked anybody to bless him, there was a big question connected to that question, and the question that the big question connected to that blessing was this: What is your name? Do you remember that? Genesis twenty-seven. Look at verse nineteen. Remember when Jacob is trying to steal the blessing from Esau? Genesis twenty-seven and verse nineteen. And Jacob said unto his father, Jacob says to Isaac, he says, "I am." What's he say? Esau. Is that his name? And Jacob said unto his father, "I am Esau, thy firstborn." I have done according as thou badest me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that, my soul, that thy soul may bless me. He says, Isaac, bless me. I'm Esau. Look at verse 20. And Isaac said unto his son, How is it that thou hast found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord thy God brought it to me. And Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. See, Isaac was questioning, Are you really Esau? You said you're Esau. You told me your name was Esau. You said to bless you because your name is Esau. But are you really Esau? Look at verse 22. And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he discerned him not, because his hands were hairy and his brother's Esau's hands. So he blessed him, and he said, Notice, notice the question in Isaac's mind. Art thou my very son? Esau, notice what Jacob said, and he said, I am. See, the last time Jacob asked for a blessing, there was this question connected to that blessing, and the question was this, what's your name? And Jacob said, it's Esau, and he lied to get a blessing, and he ran away from home because of that blessing, and now he's coming back, and he's got to deal with Esau, and he finds himself wrestling with God. And he's asking for a blessing. Go back to Genesis 32. Look at verse 27. Genesis 32. Look at verse 26. And he said, let me go for the day breaking. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? 
You ever had one of those moments in your life where everything kind of slows down? You ever, you ever been in a car accident? Which, the way I drive, you know, you know I have. Or, or you've maybe ha seen a car accident happen in front of you? You ever seen a car accident happen right in front of you, and it, like, goes in slow motion? That ever happened to anybody? It's happened to me. You know, I've seen that. Where, where things kind of slow down? I think this is one of those moments for Esau. He's wrestling with God. He says, let me go. He says, I will not let thee go unless thou bless me. And he says, what is thy name? And I think everything slows down. I think in the mind of, in the mind of Jacob, he goes back 20 plus years when his father was asking him, what is your name? And he lies. He said, it's Esau because I want a blessing. And here in verse 27 of Genesis 32, the Bible says, and he said unto him, what is thy name? I want you to notice how the verse ends. And he said, Jacob. Why does God bring crisis into our lives? I think God brings crisis into our lives to confront us with ourselves. To get us to the place where we're willing to say and willing to admit, God, this is who I am. Because if you remember, the name Jacob means deceiver. Esau said he's rightly named Jacob because he supplanted me these two times. And I think God needed Jacob to get to the place, God, this is who I am. This is what I've been. I've been a liar. I've been a deceiver. I've been running away. I've been living in sin. I've been backslidden. It has not been right. I have not been doing right. I want to come home. I want to make it right. And God says to him, okay, we can do all that. What's your name? He says, I'm Jacob. He says, I'm, I'm done with the lies. I'm done with the deceiving. I, I, I'm, I'm done with the manipulating. This is who I am. In Luke 15, when Jesus gives the parable of the prodigal son, the way the Bible puts it there, it says that he came to the end of himself. And God will often put you in crisis and me in crisis because he's trying to get us to the end of ourselves. Where we say, God, I'm done with the lying. I'm done with the cheating. I'm done with the stealing. I I I'm done with the manipulating. I I'm done with the half stories. I I'm just telling you. This is who I am. I'm Jacob. I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. Why does God allow Christ in our lives? Number one, to get our attention. Why does God allow Christ in our lives? Number two, to confront us. Why does God allow Christ in our lives? Number three, to transform us. Notice Genesis 32 and verse 28. In verse 27, he said, Jacob, I'm Jacob. And in verse 28, Jesus, God, and he said, notice what he said, thy name shall be called no more, Jacob, but Israel, for a prince has thou power with God and with men and has prevailed. See, what God wanted to do with Jacob was not to reform Jacob. He wanted to transform Jacob. What God, what God was doing in the life of Jacob is he was bringing him to the end of himself that he might say, once I'm willing to admit, I'm Jacob, I'm the deceiver, I'm the liar, I need to make it right. God says, you'll be no more Jacob. See, what God wants to say to you and what God wants to say to me is I used to be a liar. I used to be a drunkard. I used to be a fornicator. I used to be a cheater. I, I, I was running from my sin. And God says, hey, let's take that away. You'll be no more Jacob. So I'm going to rename you Israel. For as a prince, you have power with God and with men. God wants to transform you. Did you keep your place in Psalms? Go, go back to Psalms. Go, but don't go to Psalms. Go to Job. Right before Psalms, Job. Why does God allow crisis in our lives? I think God wants to transform you through the crisis. Job 23, look at verse 10. Job 23 and verse 10. Remember, Job was going through quite a crisis himself. Remember that? Job was going through, through a lot in his life where God was trying him and testing him. Now, I want you to notice what Job said. We've been singing it. We sang it this morning, and we sang it uh, tonight in the course of the week. Job 23 and verse 10 this is what Job said, but he knoweth the way that I, take, that I take when he hath tried me. When he's done with this crisis, I shall come forth as gold. See, God allows crisis in your life because he wants to transform you. He wants to purge you. He wants to make you better. You and I want to come back and hope Esau forgot and hope Esau let it go. And hope Esau doesn't bring it up again. Because our pride wants that. Our pride doesn't want to be confronted. Our pride doesn't want to be corrected. We want to come back and just hope Esau left and Esau's gone. But listen to me. You will always have to deal with Esau. And it's really not about Esau. 
about God. And God will often put you in crisis mode and put me in crisis mode to get our attention, to keep us from getting distracted, to get us alone that he might confront us with us and our past and to transform us into a new man, into a new woman, into a new identity. Thou shalt be called no more Jacob. I mean, I want you to notice, in the, the, we're done right here, but I want you to notice verse 30 and verse 31. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I've seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Peniel, the sun arose upon him. I just want you to notice the last phrase in verse 31. And he halted upon his thigh. And he halted upon his thigh. For the rest of his life. Because if you look at verse 32, the Bible says, Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. And here's what I want you to know. When you come back to God, you will come back with scars. Jacob doesn't just get to come back and everything's like it used to be. He comes back, but he comes back with a limp. He comes back, but he comes back injured. He comes back, but he'll never be able to wrestle like that again. You know why? Because God touched the hollow of his thigh. It's better for you and for I, better for you and for me, it's better for us to just deal with the Esau's in our life than run and hide and waste years and waste decades. Because when God finally gets a hold of us, he may have to injure you. He may have to walk with the limp. You may have to not meet certain qualifications for ministry because you went off and ran from Esau. You, you, I'm, just, I'm just telling you, you don't get to just go out there and do whatever you want and come back and everything's the same. Sometimes you come back with a limp. And that limp is a constant reminder to Jacob that the next time I'll just deal with Esau and I'll just try to make it right. And I won't waste years running and lying and manipulating because God has the power to take your reproach away. God has the power to make you no more Jacob. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I know there are some people here tonight that are not in crisis mode and I pray that they'll just take these thoughts and kind of tuck them away. But Lord, I know from time to time we're all in crisis mode. I know from time to time, we are all kind of just waiting to see what's going to happen. And Lord, help us remember through that time, help us remember through that time that you are doing that to get our attention. You are doing that to confront us with our sin. You are doing that to transform us that like Job, we may come forth as gold. And Lord, I pray that you would please help us to identify those times in our lives, to not continue to run, Lord, but to identify those times and to allow your work to be done. Lord, in my life, in the life of these dear people, in the life of our church, we love you, Lord. In your precious name, I pray. Amen.